Welcome to Strung Out, a podcast dedicated to look at life through the lens of an artist. That artist and your host is Martin Lawrence McCormack. And now here's Martin. Welcome to our 44th podcast of Strung Out. We are passing milestones. We're well over a thousand uh, downloads now on Strung Out. And this past week has been tumultuous when you examine what has gone in the cases of gun violence in the United States. And rather get into the facts and figures, I thought we could turn to our favorite council person, who happens to be Dave Hubelman, who is the council person with Norwalk, Connecticut. And we have met Dave before on podcasts, and I love bringing him in, especially when it comes to guns. And the reason being is that Dave is one of the few people I know that grew up with guns. So welcome to Strung Out, Dave. Good to have you here. Thanks, Martin. I'm uh, very happy to be here. An interesting subject for today. I'm, I'm looking forward to it. I thought, as we were talking before we started the podcast, that I wanted to keep away from throwing a bunch of facts and figures at our listeners because they can find them. But one thing that stuck out today is just, I thought that the National Rifle Association was on its back heels. Wayne Lapierre was on a yacht somewhere. Looks like they're coming out with a very strong ad campaign against uh, President Biden and the whole idea of guns. Not to say that, even to say that Biden has a, a comprehensive plan yet, but they're just saying that Biden's going to take your guns. With that in the background, I, I, I thought that monster was dead, but it's very much alive. You're a person that grew up with guns, right? Yeah, yeah. And, yeah. Uh, we, I grew up with guns and hunted, and we were, the, the, the majority of the weapons that we owned were sporting weapons. They, we were not out in the woods training for anything. We were out in the woods hunting for pheasant and ducks, and we shot pistols because it was fun to do. We set up a target, we had a backdrop, and we target practice. And it was just what I grew up with. But interestingly enough, the gun thing, we also grew up in a house where the guns weren't locked. This is the 60s and we didn't put them in a gun safe. They were in a, in a closet. We had a gun, one of those racks, mantle racks, where there were, you know, shotguns hanging on it. And the guns, my grandparents had loaded guns next to the nightstand. And it was interesting because I never thought about it. Growing up, though, we learned how dangerous they were and not to touch them and only when one of the adults was around. But they were present. And it wasn't until I was much older, the idea of a gun safe. I was like, gun safe? Oh, OK. Lock up your ammunition. Oh, yeah. OK, that makes sense. Let's talk a little bit about that growing up around guns, because I think for a lot of people listening, they don't have guns. They, they have no idea about it. And uh, you touched on the idea that the parents, your folks were around saying, don't touch it. Just dive a little more into that. I liken it to this, Martin. When my son was little, and actually still, he's a a very adolescent 12-year-old now. But we would talk about things as, well, that's a tool, not a toy. That's a tool, not a toy. And guns, for me growing up, were tools. We hunted. A gun was the tool that you used to hunt. You, to keep yourself, for want of a better word, trained, you did target practice. And the tool of the target practice was the pistol. So I learned in a very utilitarian way 
that this is a weapon and it has a use and function. And so I saw them that way. I never thought of them as, I guess you could say, oh yeah, they're cool. Guns are cool. Some people feel that way. I, I think they're interesting. I think they're beautiful. There's craftsmanship that goes into it. There's engineering that goes into it. The evolution of how a, a firearm came to be is fascinating to me. That's how, what my background is from that standpoint. As a kid, it, it again was, oh, we had guns. They were tools. We hunted with them. Now, most people that have committed murders, the big ones, where you have seen in the news these mass shootings and that, what kind of gun are they talking about there? Usually it's a semi-automatic sort of gun. The bottom line is it's a weapon that is designed to put a very large hole in its target, which means it's designed to kill. And anybody who tries to tell you it was designed for something else is I think they're being disingenuous because they're designed to kill. And the biggest thing is a handgun is designed to kill ultimately in protection is the concept anyways behind it. So, yeah, you're talking about varied, many varied weapons. It could be a revolver. It could be a semi-automatic pistol. It can be a semi-automatic rifle. It could be an automatic rifle. There are a lot of variations. The shooting, the mass shooting that happened in Las Vegas, that was a semi-automatic rifle that had a device attached to it called a bump stock that transfers the energy of the recoil when a gun is discharged, it's a chemical process. You're igniting gunpowder in a contained area, meaning the, the shell, and that explodes and is contained within a barrel and the barrel forces the projectile, the bullet, out the other end. And so that, that explosion force causes energy, which causes a recoil. So it causes it to bounce backward. A bump stock, what it does is it... it accepts the energy of the recoil and transfers it back to firing the weapon again. So the weapon, the semi-automatic weapon becomes more like an automatic weapon at that point. So you fire many more rounds per minute than you could with a semi-automatic weapon where you have to pull the trigger each time. So when they talk about multiple shots in these situations, they're talking about semi-automatic weapons. In that particular case, it was a bump stock that made the gun mimic an automatic weapon. Then you put a clip on it that holds 99 rounds. That's a lot of damage that can potentially be done. The shooting that happened on Long Island the other day, I don't know what weapon that was. That could have been a revolver. That could have been some sort of handgun. I don't know. People get hurt and die when they get discharged. That's what happens. <clears throat> a lot of people that don't have guns get confused by people looking at it either as a toy or something to do massive harm with. But can you explain for people why you wouldn't go out into the woods with a semi-automatic rifle? No, you can go It's an interesting thing. Semi-automatic rifle just is how the gun shoots. There are semi-automatic rifles that you could take out into the woods for hunting. They have semi-automatic shotguns, which just means that you don't have to cock the gun in some way or break the barrel and put new rounds in from the shotgun. It automatically, after it fires, it ejects a shell and automatically loads the next round. So that's what a semi-automatic rifle is. You could take a semi-automatic rifle that has three rounds in it that's a caliber that is legal for deer hunting. 
I believe you can only have three rounds in the gun. And you can go hunt deer with it and you go bang. And if you can't hit it in three rounds, you shouldn't probably be hunting. Sorry, hunters, I don't mean to disparage. But the weapons you're talking about are what I and a lot of people call military grade weapons. So when they say semi-automatic weapon, that's a large class of weapons. Now let's call it what it is. It's an assault rifle. AR-15 stands for AR, assault rifle. That's what it is. It's an assault rifle. And it is a, an offensive military grade weapon, which can fire in a semi-automatic mode a lot of rounds per minute. As fast as you can pull that trigger, that gun will keep firing. Now, take that out into the woods and you're a deer hunter. And if you're a deer hunter, you want to bring down your quarry with the least amount of energy expended. You want that because you want the meat. The whole idea is to, if you're going to hunt a deer, you want to kill the deer and then you want to harvest it, which is what people do. I've done it. I've deer hunted numerous times in my life. And what you don't want to do is fire an automatic weapon or a semi-automatic weapon 15 times and put 15 holes that with projectiles that tear and rip the flesh. There's no deer left, euphemistically. So, yeah, I don't see the need. And so when people say that they want those, oh, I want to take my AR-15 deer hunting, they're not taking it deer hunting. They want the gun because of a belief that they have to protect themselves against a government that's going to take away everything from them. And yet the argument that I've always had is if the government really is going to come and take away everything, they're going to roll up your street with tanks. And your AR-15 is probably not going to be very useful to you at that particular point. We don't live in that society. We don't. We just don't live in that society. I haven't seen it. We've had issues here where we've talked about some gun legislation for the city. And the argument that gets posed all the time is the bad guys have the guns. I live in a suburban community. And I'm sorry, I don't see these bad guys with all these guns running around doing all this damage. Now, I'm not saying that we don't have violence here and that we don't have issues in our city. We do. Every city has certain law enforcement issues that they must deal with. And I think Norwalk does a pretty good job of dealing with those things. And, and yet in the same token, the attitude that we need these guns to protect ourselves against the bad guys I walk around my town all the time with my wife, with my son, and I don't feel unsafe. I don't see all these bad guys. And so I, it's, it just it feels like a disingenuous argument to me. I'm probably going to get in a lot of trouble for saying that. And I'll be very frank with you, Martin, in order to own guns, handguns in Connecticut and well, to own them and to actually transport them and go to a range and shoot them you have to have a concealed carry permit. And so I went through the steps of obtaining one many years ago. And the thing is, I don't, I don't carry. I occasionally take my guns locked up in my car and I take them and go to a range and shoot because I enjoy doing it. That's you know what they are for me. But here, in order to do that as a sportsman, I still have to have a concealed carry permit. And there are a lot of people with concealed carry permits. That makes you feel a little odd sometimes walking around going, I wonder if that guy's packing heat. It sure does. Talk to David Hubelman, who is a council person for the city of Norwalk. 
Connecticut. He's a gun owner. He's been around guns. He's probably the best person I can think of to talk about the differences we're trying to parse out today, the differences between guns, why people have guns, why people need guns, what the real threat is with guns. We're going to take just a little pause here and spin a song off the new album that's coming out, Love in the Pandemic. You're listening to Strung Out. Now that you've heard Martin McCormack, you should see him as well. Tune in to the Mr. Marty Show for Talk, a COVID cocktail, 30 seconds of cute on-the-corner special guests and music. Go to martinmccormack.com and click on the Mr. Marty Show link. They say talk is cheap, but here on the Strung Out Podcast, we say talk is gold. 
That's right. By sending a gift of love to martinmccormack.com's donate page, you help keep Strung Out broadcasting. Send your gift of love today to martinmccormack.com and help us keep talking. And we're back. David, before the break, you were talking about going over to the gun club and you have a concealed carry permit. And I, I want to ask you not so much about the concealed carry permit, but the idea of a gun club. Explain for people that haven't stepped inside a gun club the kind of people you're going to meet there. You meet the normal Everyday people, the people that live around us in our society, there are people who are more have a more heightened enthusiasm about weapons, just as there are people who have a heightened enthusiasm about cars. As I, I spoke earlier before the break, there's something interesting to me about the engineering, the creation of them, the artistry that goes into them. Weapons in general, I, I, I watch a show uh, with my son all the time, Forged in Fire, and I watch the blacksmiths make different knives and swords and weapons of war are part of our history and our life. And guns are part of that. They also are part of our survival from a sportsman standpoint. When you go walk into a gun range or a gun store, it's people from every walk of life. Some people have had an experience that has been traumatizing to them and they feel that they need to be protected and protect themselves. A gun gives them a sense of security. I sometimes wonder about the evolution of that. The question becomes, and, and this becomes the larger question, and I think we've talked about this before, Martin, about the militarization of our police forces, which I think escalates people to feel they need to be protecting themselves as well. Yet if we would spend that money on social workers and trauma specialists and those people to work side by side with our police forces, would we give people a better sense of security and make them not feel that they have to have a gun to protect themselves because of a trauma that they may have experienced. And it's a larger question. It's a philosophical question as well. But yeah, you meet everyone. I've taken friends that have never shot a gun and taken them there and they've been fascinated by it. And some have been absolutely appalled by it and thought, oh my God, you come here? And I think everybody sees it differently. But the people you meet are the people you see every day. Some are a little bit okay. more fanatic about their weapons and others are utilitarian about them. And the reason why I want to use the gun club as an example is because there you have in a gun club, you have on the range different kind of targets, right? And some are in the shape of a human being. Some are in the shape of an animal. So right then and there, you are already going into what you want to use that gun for, correct? Yes. Yeah. And I actually belong to a sporting club that's further up in Connecticut because it has an outdoor range and I can go and take hunting weapons and I can shoot skeet and do some other things that I find that I enjoy doing. And they don't allow silhouette targets. You cannot bring a silhouette target onto that range. You can bring bullseye targets. And my personal feeling is it should all be bullseye targets. The truth of the matter is the training and concept with a weapon is to be able to put rounds center body mass. So you put a silhouette target up there so that you know where it is that you're hitting. Well, 
for me, it's the bullseye is where you're pointing the gun. So I don't need to see the silhouette of a human because frankly and honestly, I don't want to shoot a human. That is abhorrent to me. So I'm bothered by silhouette targets. When I go into a gun range and I see people shooting silhouette targets, it, it upsets me viscerally because you're making an equation that you just hinted at, Marty, which is this gun is, I have this weapon to kill a person. And I don't see that as the primary need for having a weapon. Okay. I think one of the things that people who don't have guns wonder about is why are gun owners so hypersensitive about the Second Amendment (laughs) that if there's some sort of regulation, that that means that all these guns are going to be taken away when clearly other countries like Canada, hunters still have their guns. Ireland, The hunter has the gun in the house. The very sort of tools that you talked about don't seem to be affected. So can you explain for our listeners as we start going down the slippery slope of politics and money? I think you're opening the door to a sledding expedition right now. The question is, do we have a break on it? Second Amendment reads thus. A well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Now, how many people know that's what the Second Amendment is, yet they scream about the Second Amendment all the time? The thing about it is when you read that, and this is the vagary that the Founding Fathers handed us in the Constitution, what does that mean? Break this down and go first line to me is really important. A well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state. Now, let's look back at the context of when it was written. There was an argument going on about whether or not we should disband the Continental Army and have a standing army and have a military and levy taxes to maintain that military. That was a big argument going on amongst the gentlemen in Philadelphia when they were writing the Constitution. And... Jefferson was one who said, no, we do what we did in the Revolutionary War. We call people up to arms and we run out and we all go and we fight whoever's coming after us. And Adams argued that we needed an army and we had to have an army. He eventually got a Navy, which was we got the Navy before we got the army. Piracy actually caused us to have a Navy. So well-regulated militia. Okay, what did that mean in the 1790s and what does it mean in 2021 we have national guard that's a well-regulated militia we have an army a navy an air force and marines so we have all of the tools to protect the sovereignty of our free state so i question that the Second half of that, the right of what is the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. I say that there should be some infringement as to the types of arms that they can own. And strict constructionists like Scalia actually agree with that. And if you wrote, if you read his support of, I believe it was Heller, he mm-hmm. said that the state has the right to say the types. They can't tell you you can't have any. 
but they can tell you that there are certain types that you can't have. And I think McDonald's supported that as well in, in Chicago, the case in the uh, McDonald versus uh, city of Chicago, I believe. And you look at that and you go, okay, this is the big argument. You're going to take away my second amendment rights. I, I don't know that the second amendment rights says you should have a weapon of war. It doesn't say that. Okay. Shotgun to go shoot skeet and, and hunt birds, a pistol for home protection because you feel that you need it. Those things are different to me. But and a military grade weapon. I don't know. I don't see the point. I don't see the need. So that that's my answer to that or uh, part of my answer. Anyway, I appreciate you reading from the Constitution and. I'm just very curious after if you have the Constitution in front of you, what does it say then after that the rights of the the people shall not be infringed? The right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. It's literally one sentence. Does it say anything after that? There's the Third Amendment, which I happen to enjoy myself, and that's no soldier shall in time of peace be quartered in any house without the consent of the owner, nor in time of war, but in a manner to be prescribed by law. You can't house people. You can't take over a person's house and stick soldiers in there. And that hasn't happened yet. So that amendment's solid. No, the Second Amendment, this is the thing that, you know, that the founding fathers did. They wrote these guiding principles for our nation. And I believe that they wrote them with a certain level of vagary that allows us in each age to interpret the need for us. You brought up the NRA before and yeah, I was thought they were done as well, but I actually do think they're done. I think this is a big gasp right now because the truth is, I think it's a big gasp because they're playing the same old song. It's Charlton Heston out of my cold dead hand thing. It's the same tune. The tune's getting really old when these things are happening, when you, you have a store in Colorado, guys, for whatever reason, I don't know the reason, but he goes in the store and he shoots a bunch of people. You have to then start asking the question, where do you draw the line? When you have over 70% of our population in favor of universal background checks, when they're in favor of red flag laws, the one where was he? The shooter just recently, Indianapolis. His mother went to the police and said, I think my son is a danger to himself and potentially others. And Indiana has a red flag law. And that was never followed through. That young man went out, took a gun and killed people. Mental illness. These things are common sense. But if 80, 90 percent of the population sees common sense, and the money behind the gun industry, the manufacture of these things, if they're saying, oh, no, we can't slow this down. This is our biggest market. The United States of America is our biggest market. We can't lose this market. Then you're bordering on the concept of corporations dictating the laws for the state. And the state should be dictating the laws for the people. Truthfully, the politicians serve the people. They don't serve the corporations that make the guns. That's a problem. <laughs> Much larger issue than we're talking about. <laughs> I mean, good point, though. And I, I always hate to interrupt you because you have a lot of great things to bring to the table. 
And this is not an easy topic to talk about just for these reasons. Every incident that you just brought us where these people had guns and for these mass shootings, especially the one in Indianapolis, is a great example of where you have somebody that has mental illness yet has access to a gun. The Sandy Hook shooting, which will probably always stand out as probably the, the high watermark of tragedy, let's hope, that guy was totally mentally ill. Yes. Uh, the Aurora, Colorado shooting at the movie theater, the guy, once he was finally on his meds, came to senses and showed remorse. It was, again, mental illness. But we are talking here about the philosophy with guns. If people are able to look at guns as the necessary tool, some of the sexiness is then taken away, isn't it? Yeah, I think so. I, I do. I think there's a little bit of it's utilitarian. I, I like to go to a hardware store. I get off on a good hammer. That's just me. Design, all of that stuff. So yeah, there's. I think there's always going to be a certain allure in a weapon or in a hammer, a, a, a really skillful carpenter is going to choose a hammer really well. A guy who is a really skillful marksman is going to look at weapons in a different way. I don't know what you call the sexy quality will ever go away, but you have to also understand what it's designed for, what its purpose is. And that may be an odd equivalency, the hammer and the gun thing, but it, it, it it's a tool and you can revel in the beauty of how that tool is made, how that tool can be used. But if you are suffering from a mental disorder, if you're suffering from depression, if you're suffering from schizophrenia, that thing, that, that device, that tool be, can become a representation of something else. And you can think that you can help yourself by using that tool. And that's where, that's the scary part of it. There's too much accessibility to these things in our society. And then there's the other side of accessibility. We just passed a law in Connecticut two years ago that you had that any gun in a home had to be locked up because... <laughs> Had numerous shootings. Kids found a gun in the house. The kid doesn't know what they're doing. They didn't know that they'd never been around that thing. They'd seen it on TV, seen the guns in video games. And so they played with it. It was loaded and another child gets hurt. These are the things that when the NRA gets up in arms about the fact that you should lock up your weapons in a house where children are, I just sit back and go, where's your credibility? Mm -hmm. Let's take a little break here. And when we come back, I want to have you expound just a little bit for the last part of this podcast about guns and the equivalency with cars and guns, the gun industry with the equivalency of the cigarette industry. I want you to think about those as we play this next song. We are listening to Strung Out. Every Day, Every Day is a celebration about us, an album that looks at our lives with optimism, joy, and hope. Songs that make you want to dance. Download your copy of Every Day, Every Day by going to martinmccormack.com and click on the music page. Since I met you, 
Appreciate the show. Click on martinmccormack.com and go to the donate link. Your financial gift of love will keep the show rolling. We have Dave Huvelman here. David Huvelman is a council person for the city of Norwalk, Connecticut. It's going to be fun to follow David because David is slowly climbing up the, the political ladder. He was one of the first people we had in our co-formation series because he is just a great example of somebody that's taken this pandemic and tried to figure out how we can make lemonade out of the lemon guns and cars. And I said, sexy people have cars for utilitarian reasons, and they also have cars for the sexy reason. Yet in our country, we don't have, we don't allow people to buy tanks. Why is that? Why? And yet we can allow people to have a handgun, utilitarian, shotgun, utilitarian, an AR-47, a tank. The equivalent. Well, here's the th- tank. I don't know if I can go out and buy a surplus tank. I think I probably could buy a surplus tank as long as the weapon was rendered inert because you can't own the weapon. Those particular items are outlawed. You can't fire a 20 millimeter round or a 40 millimeter round. That's illegal. Why are automatic weapons still illegal uh, in this country? It was this the St. Valentine's Day massacre in Chicago. That's where that law came from because the, the gangsters at the time carried 
Thompson machine, they outlawed them from that point forward. There are loopholes to be able to get a fully automatic weapon in this country, but a tank and a car and a gun. It's an interesting question. I don't know the answer because I think you could buy a tank. I think you could buy an armored personnel carrier. I see people that are able to purchase surplus, the big trucks, the big deuce and a half military trucks, but you wouldn't be able to buy the gun part of it. You wouldn't be able to buy the part of it that does, that's the damage part of it. Let's but- face, um, if you bought a tank, Dave, and let's say you bought a tank and you drove it into Norwalk, you're going to well, have the problems, roads, right? the, the problem problem becomes is, are the roads capable of handling it? There may be issues with driving the weight of that machinery on the roads, the way the tracks function, because they turn, they can chew up the pavements. So you could get into issues from a Department of Transportation standpoint. Well, that was the whole thing. If you remember, our former president wanted to have a big, giant fascist military parade. And that was one of the arguments. DC roads couldn't handle that. You chew the road up. So that's part of the reason I think it's more of a public works factor than it is a safety. I, I think it was a fashion parade, not a, a fashion. fashion. <laughs> I, but okay. obviously I'm, I'm giving you an easy correlation. Here, you bring up an interesting point, and I've heard this before, and it's, this is an interesting one. There was a movement in a, in a number of states have tried to do this and it hasn't passed yet, but that you would have to have insurance. You want to own weapons, you have to buy insurance, certain type of insurance. So you own a weapon, you get insurance. And we and the equivalency of a car, you own a car, you have to have insurance in order to register the car. So you have to have insurance in order to buy a gun. The question that I always ask is, yeah, that would be a, a positive thing from a standpoint of if the gun gets used in an activity and someone gets hurt then there's insurance that can cover that injury, all of those things. But the question that I have is, do I drive my car differently having insurance than when I don't have insurance? This is seatbelt law. Do I drive my car differently with my seatbelt on than with my seatbelt off? That's a big question. So does the insurance stop mass killings? No. It doesn't have it. It has no authority, no weight to do that in that sense. And those laws, though, may be good for a number of reasons, still aren't going to get to the heart of the issue, which is. There are people who are legally obtaining weapons and hurting other people. And. You have to question their motives and who they are. And that gets into the mental health issues and everything else. And let's look, Kenosha, Wisconsin. Police shooting that happens there. And then the, the riot, I want to say riots, the, the uprising that went on around that shooting. And a 17-year-old kid kills three people with an AR-15 in the street. And the cops hand him water. I don't know. That was a question. Well, why that kid? Why? Why was that kid running around with a military grade weapon? Which brings me to the next point, Dave. Cigarettes. The most successful litigation against any kind of industry to date has been the lawsuits against the tobacco industry. And truly, cigarettes are not gone, but the 
power of the tobacco industry has been obliterated to some degree, at least in the United States. Is there an equivalency then with the gun manufacturers and the cigarette industry? As a council person in Norwalk, would it make sense to the city of Norwalk to launch a, a class action suit, bring in other cities and such against one of these companies that makes an AR-47 or an M-16. It's an AR-15, AR but you're posing an interesting hypothetical. Here's part of the problem for the, one of the problems for a municipality is you cannot preempt state law and then state law can't preempt federal law. There are areas of jurisdiction where the different level of government has a preemption to the law for, in that particular instance. So if there is a law on the books in the state of Connecticut that says one thing and it's been tried in the state of Connecticut, they then have preemption over a law that if we wanted to make a harsher penalty, we actually can't. We can add on to it. We can create other things, but utilizing that law, the, the specificity of that law that the state made, the municipality has to follow. The cigarette thing is a tough one because here's the thing. Cigarette industry flat out lied. And that's what was proven over years and years of looking at this. They knew that this was harmful to the health of humans, either Firsthand, the people smoking it. Secondhand, the people who were standing next to the person who smoked. And they lied and they uncovered a great amount of that lying about what the danger was of a cigarette. The gun industry has not lied. They advertise and market those weapons based on what those weapons can do. Nobody's lying and saying it can't kill you that a gun can't kill you, that pulling the trigger doesn't potentially send a projectile downrange and could hurt life. They don't say that doesn't happen. So it becomes a, a question of how would you bring a class action suit? What tripped up the, the tobacco industry was the fact that they suppressed information about the, the health effects of smoking. I haven't seen where the gun industry has suppressed that information. Now, there may be a different angle that's way above my pay grade for understanding, but it's a hard one because you have Second Amendment protections that exist. You have local codes, you have state codes, you have all these things that, that do exist that allow weapons to be sold. I think that, what was it, last year... The Connecticut Supreme Court, what did they rule? They ruled that one of the gun manufacturers could be held responsible for Sandy Hook. And I think it was a big win for Sandy Hook because they said that there is a responsibility factor that the manufacturer can be held responsible. I don't know the particulars of that case. I would need to look it up. You can say a responsibility from the standpoint of whose hands does the gun fall into the, the societal responsibility for making sure that the laws are in place to 
Um, make sure the guns don't get into the hands of people who potentially could do harm to themselves or others. But I, I think it would be a tough, be a very tough road to go down, Martin. Very tough road. And like I said, it's a little above my pay grade. Well, that answered your question or not? I'm sorry. I think leaving it hanging in the air with a question mark is a great way for us to wrap up this podcast because I, I think our listeners will appreciate the fact that you're not preaching at them. You're a gun owner. You're also a public servant. And I don't know an M16 from a Daisy, a sure shot. And I did not grow up with guns. I grew up around you that had guns. So that was my experience. Just one last thought, Dave. Going forward, if as a council person, if you had the crystal ball in front of you, what do you think is going to be the upshot of the next, let's say, six months with the spate of killings? that we have had, do you think it's going to be the same old? I don't know what's going to happen because that would, as you said, that'd be the crystal ball moment. And I wish I had the crystal ball. There is an appetite to make some huge changes right now. And I think that it is important for us to try to make those changes happen. When you have the vast majority of a population that is saying they want this change, we have to find ways to make our leaders be held responsible to their bosses, which are us, the citizens of the nation. And so if over 70% of the population wants tightened background checks, wants the gun show loopholes closed, wants the straw sale loopholes closed, that should happen. I think there's an appetite in on the federal level to make that happen rather than individual states. But it's a tightrope right now. We have a very slim majority in the Congress, in, in the Senate, and a slim majority in the House on a federal side when it comes to the division of Democrat and Republican. And what we've experienced so far in this new administration is that one side, I don't believe, and this is my belief, now I'm not speaking for anyone else, but my belief is that the one side of the argument is holding completely to the ideology of I don't care what you say, you're on the other side, I'm going to vote against you. Regardless of the fact that their constituents are saying, no, we want you to vote this way. We want you to support sensible gun legislation. Look at the polling. Look at this. We want you to support this. And yet they're still going to vote against sensible gun legislation because that's coming from the other side of the aisle. And that's the problem that we have with the polarization in this country. We plugged in an amplifier and turned it up to 11 on this idea of a division. And that's what I'm afraid of, is that we're going to be in the same place six months from now. We're going to see more death. I, I don't believe that it's over. We have people who right now are upset and angry and hurt and in pain because of a pandemic that's basically put a lid on all of us. And I think that as we open, as the country continues to open up and go back to normal, whatever that normal is, you're going to see this happen because of the pain that people are in and the access that the people have to 
weapons that can harm. Well said, and I really appreciate you wrapping things up and totally appreciate the fact that you actually used a spinal tap example of getting the amp to 11. <laughs> Thank you. I'm showing my age. I tried to get my son, my 12-year-old, to watch that movie the other day. That He was just, Dad, this is... Now I was like, all right, fine. I want to thank David Hewelman, our counsel person for Strung Out. He's the go-to person when we start talking about these is, areas is that, that combine. Do you, have me on, did, do you have me on because I'm Strung Out? Is that Strung Out? It has nothing to do with drugs. It was supposed to uh, have everything to do with strings on it. I know. But that's been pointed out to me, and I haven't had any sponsors. The recreational drug industry has not come knocking at my door yet. Hey, um, that's a good one. We should talk We should talk about that soon. Illinois has passed it now, right? Uh, yes, Illinois has passed it. And why don't we plan on tapping you in coming up in May to talk about that. You are involved in the best politics there are, I think, which is city politics. That's really where it happens. Go local. Thank you so much, listeners. For I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. And that's where we're going to leave it. Councilperson Hubelman, always great to have you. Thank you, Martin. Enjoyed being here. Thanks for listening to Strung Out. On our website, you can sign up for the newsletter for Strung Out, as well as the Mr. Marty Show. Just go to martinmccormack.com.